3 John uh, 1 and 4, just one verse of scripture from there, 3 John 1 and 4. The Bible reads as so in the name of Jesus Christ. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Amen. I've been preaching a while, and um, I don't think I have ever preached surrounded by confetti. Amen. But I want to speak to you here on this simple subject, my greatest joy, my greatest joy. Thank you, Jesus, for your word, and thank you, Jesus, because it is a light to our feet. And I pray, O oh God, that it would direct us in the journey that we should take, that we would glean from it what you would have us glean, and that we would put it into practice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you before you see to tell your neighbor, you absolutely look better than I do today. book of Matthew has uh, spells out for us what has been commonly called the great commission the great commission the great commission is that we should go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age that is what is called the great commission in the bible now for the most part the church has been faithful to the first commission. We are the great commission. We have evangelized most of the known world and even remote parts of the world where we feared that the gospel would never reach. Those parts have also been reached. Outreach efforts have been expanded throughout the years to include things like crusades and campus ministries and concerts and small groups, get together street uh, flyer distributions and services and TV advertisements. I mean, you have it. You you know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm pleased to say that just from one glance at my Twitter any given Sunday, the church is baptizing people at record numbers. We are fulfilling the first part of the commission. We are going to the nations. However, as impressive as going to the nations and preaching the word is, Many have sadly neglected that part of the Great Commission that has to do with teaching, teaching. See, teaching is just as essential to making disciples as baptizing is. Matthew twenty-eight twenty tells us that we should not only baptize them, but that we should also teach them to observe all things that Jesus commanded. Uh, there are many baptisms, but few are being taught to obey Christ's commandments. That's what I call the great omission, the great omission, because many in the church have omitted discipleship from the great commission. We have failed to teach as part of our discipleship. Now, today, I'd like to introduce you to the group that has been omitted the most from the great commission. Thank God we have preached the gospel throughout most of the known world. The gospel has been preached from the Sahara Desert to primitive tribes living near the Amazon River in Brazil's jungles and grain forests. It has been preached in the Peruvian hills and in temperatures way below freezing level to the natives in Alaska. It has been preached in the Middle East and all over Asia to people who are antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have preached the gospel to nearly the whole earth. But there is a certain group that many times is ignored. This group is before our very eyes daily. 
We have omitted this group from our responsibility to disciple them. This is not a group that is found overseas. This is not a group that needs a passport. We need a passport to get to this group. We, you don't need it. We even need a visa. You don't have to take additional vaccines to help uh, defend against certain native diseases. No, ladies and gentlemen, this group is called family family because many times we forget that the baby that was born in our household once he outgrows his innocence he is not saved by association simply because he lives in your home or because you have a relationship with Jesus or because you are a minister or a prayer warrior or deacon or deaconess such and such God doesn't have grandchildren. God only has children. And the word of God makes every person responsible individually for their sins, regardless of what household they come from. If there is someone that needs to be evangelized, it's your children. If there is someone that needs to be discipled, first and foremost, it is your children. If there is someone that needs to be stimulated to love and good works, it is your household. If someone needs to understand the gospel clearly, above all, it should be our family. Our family. Because family always comes first. Dr. Kara Powell of the Fuller Youth Institute at Fuller Seminary conducted a survey which only counted adults who were a part, a part of a church or youth group when they graduated from high school. Her estimate based on multiple surveys was that up to 50% of young people did not stick with their faith once they were in college. I will admit that we're living in a day where anti-Christian ideologies are being taught in colleges. But before you hypothesize that college is the evil that is causing our young men and women to stray from their Christian upbringing, then let me share this piece of detail. Britt Beamer of the American Research Group studied only those who said they attended church every week when they were growing up, but never or seldom attend today. And after more than 20,000 calls, he came to a shocking revelation. Of those who reported that they no longer believed the Bible was true, 44% of them said that they had first had their doubts in high school, while 40% of them said they first had their doubts in middle school, and only 11% had their first doubts in college. In other words, we are not losing our kids in college. We are losing many of the hearts of our children in junior high school. Even though we don't lose their bodies until later, we are losing their hearts hearts as they're sitting in those seats right there in junior high school. Oh, brothers and sisters, that can't be so. We need a generation of apostolics who would stand up and say, not on my watch. We need a generation of apostolics who would stand and say, we are determined that we are going to reach our children and disciple our children. Before I give a Bible study out there, I must make sure that I give a Bible study to my household, to my children. Before I reach the world, it would be a shame if I reached the world and lost my own family. I want my children to be saved. See, brothers and sisters, after God, your family should always come first. Should always come first. Because before there was a world to reach in the Bible, there was a family. Before there was a church, there was a family. Before there was a pastor and an altar and a building and a board of directors and usher board and musicians and small groups and a singers and uh, there was a family. Before there was a Bible, there was 
was a family. Before there were ten commandments, there was a family. Family has always come first. You see, the Bible never addresses the family as a church, but figuratively speaking, it refers to the church as a family over and over again because the family is the church's model. The family always comes first. How do you know that, preacher? Well, the church is called the household of faith in Galatians 6 and 10. Why? Because of the family. The church, in the church, we call each other brothers and sisters. Why? Because of the family. In the church, we call God Father. Why? Because of the family. In the church, we are called the children of God. Why? Because of the family. How do you come into this family? You must be born again. Why? Because that's how you come into a family. You are born into a family. And just in case you said, well, I wasn't born in a mind. I was adopted. Well, I've got news for you. The Lord didn't give you the spirit of fear. The Lord gave you the spirit of adoption whereby you will call him or cry out to him, Abba, Father. Why? Because of the family. The church is the bride of Christ. And someday we're going to meet him in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Why? Because of the family. No matter how you slice it, no matter how you philosophize it, no matter how much you want to study it, the family will always come first. Not your ministry, not your preaching, not your goals, not your stuff. The family will always come first. Oh, bless the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. The gift of parenthood comes with an immense responsibility to do everything in your power to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Discipleship starts at home. Discipleship starts at home. It's why Paul admonished the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6 and 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. We have a solemn calling of raising our children to be fully developing disciples of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. When my firstborn son was placed in my arms for the very first time by the doctor, I felt the weight and the burden of raising a child whose soul would either spend eternity with Jesus or an eternity in a hell. That weight came over me. I'm going to tell you right now the greatest responsibility that God has gifted me in my ministry is not to evangelize and disciple this lost world, although I take that responsibility to heart. But the greatest responsibility that God has given to me is to disciple my own children. To disciple my own children. Unless you think I'm talking about an individual and a personal call to just me from the Lord. May I remind you that every father has been given this responsibility. Every single parent has been given this responsibility to teach the next generation the word of God. It's the responsibility of every parent. This is not primary the responsibility of Sunday school. It is not the children's church ministry the primary responsibility. It is not the youth group or youth pastors primary responsibility this is your given God given responsibility the church should only serve as a secondary and a complementary help to parents but God has gifted us parents as the primary responsibility to teach our children the word of God the word of God amen that's why the 
very first words that came out of my mouth when both of my boys were put in my arms, placed in my arms. They were not hello. It was not nice to meet you. It was not you're such a handsome little baby. Amen. And the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That's not what I said. It wasn't I am your daddy. No, sir. My first words to my children were here. Oh, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Those were the very first words that I whispered in Caleb's ears in Honolulu, Hawaii. And the first words I whispered in Micah's ears in the Bronx, New York. You know why? Because I have a responsibility before God to teach my children. I'll tell you how. Because the very next verse after the Shema is, and these words which I commend you today shall be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Oh God, raise up a generation that would teach their children to live and to walk in the days, in the ways of the Lord and to know that their Lord, their God is one Lord, one Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. Bless the name of the Lord. According to Hebrew tradition, when the fathers would teach their children the Shema, Shema, Hallelujah, Eloheinu, Hallelujah, when they would teach their children the Shema, they would dip their their finger in a little honey jar, get grab a little honey, and then dip their finger in the tongue of their little babies, and so their their babies would taste the honey while they began to teach the Shema. And what were they doing? They were teaching that little son or that little daughter to associate the word of God with what was sweet, with what was filling, with what was fulfilling, with what was good. Every time that they opened the word of God, that little baby would go nuts because he knew, here comes honey, here comes sweetness, here comes what's good. Oh God, give these parents ingenuity. Give me a the ingenuity and the creativity to know and to learn how to teach my children the ways of the Lord. I want my children every time they hear the word of God that something inside of them begins to leap. I want my children every time they hear I was let's go to the house of God. Something inside of them will say I was glad when they said unto me let us go into the house of the Lord. I want my children to be saved. Over and over again, the Bible reminds us of this immense responsibility we have of teaching our children. Psalm 78, 5 through 7 said, For he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare to them, uh, declare them to their children that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. Joel 1 and 3 says tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. It is why I have started in my own household to write what I call a multi-generational legacy. We are going to leave in the DS family and I already stated to my boys. It's 10 lessons. I am writing for my own family. It's a multi-generational legacy because I don't just want my children to know about the ways of the Lord. I want my children to learn how to teach their children about their ways of the Lord. And 10, 12, 14, 15 generations down, I want the world to know. Amen. And then 2,288, I want the world to 
know that there's a DS family that serves the Lord, that reaches the world, that does great exploits. We want to be a family that is raised serving our God. Cannot stress this enough. This should be our daily obsession. How can I disciple my children today? Charles Spurgeon said it best. He said, first let us begin by emphatically declaring that it is parents and fathers in particular. And not the church who are given the primary responsibility for calling the next generation to hope in God. The church serves a supplementary role reinforcing the biblical nurture that is occurring in the home these men of yesteryear have come to an outstanding conclusion and that is that though the family is not the only method God uses for discipleship but it is the primary method that God uses for discipleship and I'm going to tell you parents something this work is messy this works this work sometimes is inefficient at times it is downright depressing oh it is frustrating it is burdensome it's even exhausting oh so many times you feel like you're making so much progress and then you get a little notice from school or you get somebody making a comment or you found out that your boy or your girl is doing something that shouldn't be done and it absolutely is frustrating but can I tell you it is also rewarding can I also tell you it is also so glorious and noble and absolutely nothing if you'll put in the work there is nothing that feels better like myself to get a text from my son a couple of years ago he was a, a pretty good athlete if I should say so myself he was an AAU a traveling athlete playing for uh, a former Houston Rocket uh, Mario Ellie was his coach and he was doing an incredible job but I got a text from him at about midnight he knows he's not supposed to be on his phone that late so he texted me I was out in a meeting somewhere he texted me and said dad I'm so sorry I, I I'm texting you at this hour I know I'm not supposed to be on my phone but dad I've been praying I've been praying and dad in my room by myself and dad I don't know but I'm, I'm starting to lose my love for basketball I'm starting to lose my love for sports at what age did you say that you were called to the ministry I feel like God is also called let me tell you something there is no greater joy there is no greater joy than to hear that your children are walking in truth there's no greater joy than to tell you right now my son just got appointed youth pastor at his church amen there's no greater joy there's no greater joy than to tell you that I shared the pulpit with my son two weeks ago he's only 18 but he was out there preaching at the kids over at the altar weeping before the there is no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in truth oh God put a fire inside of somebody in this house that will say I want to reach my children Sociologist Dr. Christian Smith surveyed more than 3,000 teenagers, conducting 250 in-depth interviews. His conclusions echo what the Bible says. Most teenagers and their parents may not realize this, but a lot of research in the sociology of religion suggests that the most important social influence in shaping young people's religious lives is the religious life modeled and taught to them by their parents by their parents did you hear that the sociology sociology says the most important social influence in shaping young people's religious lives is the religious life modeled and taught to them by their parents no more excuses we have got to stop blaming social media we've got to stop blaming Netflix we've got to stop blaming YouTube we've got to stop blaming TikTok for our children's inability 
ability to be discipled it is not because of them the, the most important social influence in shaping young people's religious lives is the religious life modeled and taught to them by their parents I don't care what the White House is doing the only thing I care about is what's happening in my house what's happening in my house whatever's happening in the Diaz household that's what I have authority over and they are going to live the life that you are modeling and teaching in your home even the secular world understands this principle a proverb says one generation plants the tree and another gets the shade one generation plants the tree and the next generation gets the shade the kind of shade your children will enjoy tomorrow is in direct correlation to the type of tree you are planting today so what kind of seed are you planting I don't know about you but as for me and my house I made up a long time ago I want to plant the tree of fasting I want to plant the tree of prayer I want to plant the tree of church attending I want to plant the tree of Bible study I want to plant the tree of coming to the house of God I want to plant the tree of submission I want to plant the tree of obedience because the kind of tree that I'm planning today will be in direct correlation to the kind of shade they're going to enjoy tomorrow. God help us to have these trees in our life. And some of you will say, well, that's what we have the church for. That's what the children's pastor is for. That's what we have Camp K for. That's what the youth group is there for and the youth pastor. We'll just bring them to the church and let them deal with them and, and let them teach them the stories and, and, and let them teach them the word. And, and, and you know, while, while we just, you know, we'll just sacrifice it. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, you cannot continue to outsource your responsibility to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You, This is not outsourceable. This is not outsourceable. You know why? Because I'd never hire another man to stand in my children's wedding. I would never allow another man to stand in my place in their graduation. I would never let somebody else be in their birthday parties. I would never let another man teach my boys how to shave or drive a car or catch a ball or how to dress or how to open a door for a lady I would never allow another man to do that that's my responsibility so why then is it so easy for us to let other people be the primary teachers of our sons in the things of God if you don't let them teach them how to throw and catch a ball then you can't let them teach them how to read the word I've got to teach them how to read the word I've got to teach them how to fall down and pray I've got to teach them how to come to the house of God our text says I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth John was obviously referring to his spiritual children in this text but it easily applies to biological children or any child whom we have taken responsibility for. My greatest joy is John's greatest joy. It is to hear that my children walk in truth. Oh, how many parents I know of some, perhaps even in this sanctuary today, that carry the burden of children who have been taught the word from an early age, but who no longer walk with God as adults. Oh, God, Charles Spurgeon once said that there is no heavier cross to carry than that one. Can I tell you something? You can't, you can't continue to blame yourself. You've, you've done all you can. You have preached. You have taught, you have prayed, you, you've tried, you've fasted, and they decided that they wanted to go in a different place. Listen, when my children are outside of my tutelage, they also have the power of choice. They're going to have to choose for themselves. Choose ye this day whom you are going to serve. It is no longer my responsibility then. That's on them. Oh, that's got to be a burden and an anguish that a parent feels knowing that Jesus is 
is coming back soon that any day can be my child's last day on this earth have I done enough have I discipled enough have I said enough have I taught enough so that's why I ask God daily while my children are still under my roof while my children are still under my tutelage I ask daily to give me wisdom God give me understanding and give me a burden don't ever let me get so cold that I would ignore my children don't ever let me get so cold that I would ignore their cries for discipleship their questions for the word don't ever let me get so cold that I won't look for ingenuity and creativity and ways to teach them the ways of the Lord and and teaching points and ways to motivate them to come to the house of God I know it is a challenge but it is a challenge that I want to take head on God give it to me let me and help me oh if God would help me tonight today to stimulate someone in this crowd don't you ever stop praying over your children don't you ever stop fighting for your children this is a hill you that is worthy for you to die on you ought to die on this hill don't you protect this hill of their salvation this hill is worth you dying on you protect it you do everything in your power you make sure that those boys and girls that they're going to see Jesus someday and I'll tell you why because if my boys lose the crown of life then it's of little consolation to me that they gain MVP trophies in basketball I could care less about Grammy awards and valedictorian honors and doctorate degrees I could care less about your education above all I want my children to be saved I have no greater joy in this life than to know that my children are walking in truth. We all have to finish that sentence. I have no greater joy than what? Some will say, I have no greater joy than my children marrying into an accomplished family. Well, that's a good joy to have. But that's not the greatest joy. Somebody will say, well, I have no greater joy than my children graduating from college with highest honors. That is a good joy to have and lower your expectations a little bit. But <laughs> but that shouldn't be your greatest joy. I have no greater joy than my children become model citizens in society. That's a good joy to have. But that should not be your greatest joy. My greatest joy is to know that my children are walking in truth. That is my greatest joy. When God decided to choose a nation with whom he could interact through them with the world, the Lord chose a man to be their father, Abraham. Abraham was not the kind of man that we would normally choose to lead a nation. He was 75 years of age, came from an idolatrous nation, had a wife that was sterile. Why would God choose Abraham of all the young men, strong, willing, educated, with young brides who were not sterile? Why would God choose Abraham? Well, I believe that Genesis 18 gives us that answer. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. He said, no, I'm not going to hide that. The Lord himself answered his own question. He said, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. He said, the reason I'm not going to hide it from Abraham is because I've known him. He is going to teach his 
children and his household after him. The reason that God chose an elderly man with a body that was as though it were dead, according to Romans 4, is because the Lord could trust him to command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord. You see, when God set out to look for a father of a nation, a leader of his people, a shepherd of his sheepfold, he didn't go looking into Harvard School of Business. He didn't go looking for contract closing capabilities. He didn't go looking for great charisma or leadership skills or public speaking qualities. No, he looked for a man who knew how to teach his children the ways of the Lord. Oh, fathers. Oh, fathers, we need some tears in our eyes. We need God to put a burden in our hearts. We need God to light a fire in our bosom. Oh, fathers in this house, I urge you, fathers, more than anybody, fathers, you who are the patriarch of your home, the priest of your family, the prophet, the protector. Oh, fathers, you who are also the pursuer. You, fathers, you must stand up in this last generation that we are living in and say, God, give me the ability to lead my home and to nurture my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Some years ago, I was uh, tasked to go to the country of Argentina. What a beautiful sunny day it was that afternoon I arrived at the airport. It was a little city called Bahia Blanca, Argentina, early in 2013. See, for years there had been an affectionate connection between the church in Argentina and myself. That was the first place that I ever traveled to to speak um, for a, uh, you know, outside of this country. I was only 19 years old, and they asked me to speak at the, the, the national convention there, our national youth convention. And when I first said yes, um, I got the call, and I was so honored, and I remember I, I first said yes. I, I thought it would be, you know, 200, 300 young people somewhere, and I thought, man, that's a huge crowd. I don't think I've ever preached at that large gathering like that. And then they brought me in from the back, and there were about 10,000 people in this auditorium. And you could understand, at 19 years old, I tried my best to keep it together. But my God, there was an earthquake going on in my body. <clears throat> um, but it, it, from that time, we, we developed a, a, a really cool connection between myself and that people. I love the people. I love the food. The steak there is absolutely to die for. And every single aspect of Argentinian culture is, is pretty cool, except for one thing they call mate. Mate. Now, mate is an herbal tea rich in caffeine that is shared in social settings. And may I say, the tea itself is not that bad. Um, you drown it in sugar, it's not that <laughs> bad. The problem that I had with mate was that the first time that I had it was in a social setting. We went to a home, a humble home, and out in the living room, they all sat us kind of in a circle and environment, and they, they were all uh, talking and such, and they went to make this tea, and, um, and then they began to pass it around because everyone <clears throat> shares the same metal straw. And the same hollow calabash gird. All it took for me to decline a sip was to see how it was coming my way. I just kept looking at it and people were, and, you know, putting it back. And I thought to myself, goodness, COVID wasn't around back then, but I was like, whatever that is, it's worse than COVID. It just kept coming around and around and around. And all it took for me to decline a sip was to see, uh, I just looked at the person I was about to drink from. And it was a beautiful, beautiful and precious, but toothless grandmother. And uh, she took her swig and then she passed the girl to me and smiled wide. Immediately, I knew I couldn't partake. I said, no, thank you, ma'am. I choose life. 
The airport in Bahia is very tiny, but this is the exact region that's responsible for producing basketball giants. So I, I, I thought I'd, you know, fit in. But when I looked, when I landed, I saw most of the people are actually vertically challenged. Uh, so uh, these giant basketball players that came from that region must be the exception and not the rule. It is not Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires is a nice little metropolitan city. Reminds you, you know, you think you're in Europe, actually, when you land in Buenos Aires. It's, but it is beautiful in its own right. This Bahia Blanca is beautiful. Um, however, to my surprise, I wasn't going to be speaking in Bahia Blanca. I was going to go to the countryside, they said. I didn't know that that was possible. Bahia Blanca had a countryside. I thought I was in the country. And they said, oh, no, this is the city. We are about to go to the countryside. There are levels to country, people. There is country, and then there is country country. A pickup truck arrived to deliver me to my resting place, and it was one of those pickup trucks that everything in it made noise except for the radio. And we started this 60-minute trip towards the hotel, and the only advantage to driving in a car like that is that you get a free massage. The more we drove, the more I realized that I would not be staying at a five-star accommodation, and perhaps not even four or three or two. Buildings began to fade into the background, as did pavement. Pavement also began to fade into the background. And then out of nowhere, we're driving normally, as people should, uh, down this road when I saw uh, something that looked like a wild ostrich that began to chase after our car. <clears throat> Can I tell you, you don't know what um, accelerated heart palpitations feel like until you have a wild ostrich running after your car. And it dawned on me then when I saw the wild ostrich that even civilization was quickly fading away. It was as though I was being teleported to the ice age thousands of years ago. We finally arrived at my hotel and though there were mosquitoes the size of bats, literally I was pleased to have clean sheets and the tr tranquility offered by no Wi-Fi, no phone service, and no American channels on television. Although, Bishop, I don't watch television. Amen? <laughs> uh, that evening, I, I took a cab to service in the pouring rain. Um, that's, they didn't have anyone to pick me up, I guess, so they sent the cab service for me. Uh, I had to close my eyes because it was pouring rain. There was no light. There was a little uh, pathway I felt it was like a one-way dirt road that we were going in. And um, I had to close my eyes because I was almost positive that the next time I'd open them, I'd see Father Abraham. <laughs> so I closed them. I closed them tightly. Uh, the cab driver was going 85 miles. I looked at the odometer. He was going 85 miles per hour on an extremely narrow street. It was like a one-way street. That's or so I thought until I saw the headlights coming the other way just as fast. And uh, this street, it was raining, it was muddy, and it had potholes so big they deserved their own tourist stop for their Grand Canyon ship. When we finally arrived to the venue, I think I needed pliers to dislodge the grip I had on one of the door handles, the one I could find, and I had to dislodge the grip from that deal. And also, it was the first time in my life I looked in the mirror and I was literally white. <laughs> my God. I said, Lord, if you're going to change this color, you might as well change my bank account too. 
uh, now I can finally empathize with wives worldwide who have the unfortunate task of sitting in the dreaded passenger seat while their husbands channel their inner Indy 500 race driver. That's what it felt like. And to make matters worse, rain in the countryside where there's no pavement equals mud. I came out of the cab and my shoe was buried in about three inches of mud. And I had mud on my pants and on my suit jacket. Uh, and I was looking, you know, to see maybe I could go to the restroom and clean up before. But I was actually, we were really late. And so immediately I was brought up to the stage to speak. When I was coming into the place, the man was introducing me to speak. So I was brought up to the stage and I had no time to wipe away the mud. I, I, I have a tough time. I had a tough time that evening reading my notes while I spoke. My eyes were tearing up and I knew it wasn't due to emotional stimulation. It wasn't that kind of message. And at the end of service, I just, I could not open my eyes. Tears kept rolling down my face. And I explained to my host that my eyes had been tearing up the whole time. And, and I, I said, I think I may need to get to a doctor as soon as possible. This has never happened to me before. For, uh, please, I, uh, you know, maybe you can have one of your men take me to a medic because I just keep tearing and I don't know. And it, it stings and it hurts. And he just began to laugh. And uh, I said, OK, you know, I thought to myself, that's that's a little rude, but I'm, I'm going to be a man of God and uh, I'm not going to say anything about that. And then I said it again. And this time he said, no, 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 wait. And he brought some of his pastor buddies and he had them come and he said, tell them what you just told me. So I told them, I said, you know, I've been crying all since I got here. I've been crying and I don't understand why. And I'm tearing and uh, I don't know. And it really stings. I could barely open up my eyes and I don't know what it is, but I think I may need a doctor. And they all began to laugh. Amen. And uh, I began to say some things inter internally that I had to uh, ask forgiveness for later. And um, I, uh, I was shocked to hear him after the laughter had subsided. Uh, he said, oh, brother, here's here's the thing. You're OK. It's 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 normal. It's that 90 percent of the people that attended this event, thousands upon thousands of people. He said 90 percent of the people that attended this event work in the onion fields and they just arrived straight from work. So I now distinguish the smell in the air was the smell of raw onions and the gaseous essence of raw onions in the air exuded from their clothes, their pores, their hands. And every time someone would touch me or anything that the, the, uh, the stuff, the fluid, the gas in the air just made me weep, I guess. Next day, I fell in love with the people in the region. Everywhere I went, they made me feel like royalty. I went to the pastor's home to have a little, um, uh, have a little lunch, and um, the people that were outside, they, uh, the kids saw me first. By the time I came out from lunch, there were over 200 people waiting for me outside to see this great thing that had just walked into their little village that they had never seen in their lives. People were asking to touch my hair. People were asking to take pictures with me. People were hugging on me that did not know me. And uh, one, uh, they didn't know I knew Spanish. So one of the guys, one of the, there were two girls that took a picture of me. One of the girls told the other, who is it? And she said, I don't know, but he, he looks famous. <laughs> so they Oh, man, I'm going to tell you right now, I enjoyed that day. So anyway, so I, I'm taking pictures and doing all sorts of stuff. And then uh, one of the kids came up and he said, oh, uh, David Robinson, you're David Robinson. He's a basketball player. And I didn't have the heart to tell him I wasn't. So I took. So I, I took his little deal and I signed it. <laughs> Lord, I am not worthy to stand behind this sacred desk right now. <laughs> Some kid has, have a, has a David Robinson autograph. 
me explain to you. I was, uh, I was having a, a great time out there. This was early 2013. What the people did not realize and what most people didn't realize, just several months earlier, my wife of over 11 years, whom I loved with all of my soul, had just left home, left myself and my boys, left to be in a lifestyle that she felt like was the lifestyle she wanted and with the person she thought would be the person to give it to her. My boys and I were devastated. Literally months earlier, had knelt in my own home pleading for this not to happen, begging for this not to happen. I had lost 40 pounds in less than a month, 40 pounds in less than 30 days. Lord, I know you can do it again. Amen. You were the same today, yesterday, and forever. And uh, I, uh, I was just heartbroken. I was heartbroken. I was there, but every night I would be left in my hotel room by myself. I would weep myself to sleep. My boys were at home, and I was heartbroken for my boys. I had had a dream for a very long time that I would pastor someday. That was always my dream since I was 10. And I felt like this dream was never going to become reality anymore, ever. Frankly, there are many of my peers who their fathers had, you know, given them the church or they had been voted into a church somehow. And I also had those kind of dreams, but that never transpired for me. And I was becoming a little bitter, a little depressed, really. And I knew that this would probably be the end of my dreams. What? Who's going to want me? Those were my thoughts in those days. And I just, I'd be dropped at my hotel room. And listen, nothing can accelerate your depression faster than getting to a room with no Wi-Fi, no distractions, and the only thing on TV is soccer and novelas. That's the only thing that was on. Amen. Not that I checked, Bishop. <laughs> I, uh, I was struggling. So I knelt, I knelt uh, on the side of my bed. And I began to pray and cry out unto the Lord. And as I was there, I, I fell asleep. When I fell asleep on my knees, it was an out-of-body experience. I could see myself coming out of my own body, really. And I saw myself. It was a dream. And I felt like the Lord knocked on the door. So I went and I opened up the door. And when I opened up the door, it was Jesus. He was standing there, had a big old white gown. And he said, come with me. He said, I know you've been praying. Come with me. I'm about to go show you your church. And you don't understand the excitement that came over me when finally Jesus himself was at my door and said, you're about to get your permanent assignment, your church. I, I literally jumped up. He said, I'll be waiting for you in the lobby. And I said, all right. I went, I brushed my teeth. I put on the best suit I had, put on my best tie. I grabbed my Bible and I began to write some notes in the margin of the Bible because I'm thinking my first message to my church, this is going to be so exciting. My church, my own personal church. So I went outside and when I got to the lobby, the Lord directed me over to the transportation. The transportation was a big bus and where uh, they uh, transport all the onion workers all the to the fields. And that was going to be our transportation. Upon looking at that bus, I just began to cry again. I said, Lord, you know, a limo would have been nice for my first church. But I guess, all right, this is it. Got in the bus. We began to go. I didn't know where I was going, but I was just so excited I could care less. I began to sing missionary songs. I began to read my word and go over my notes. I was going to preach to my first, to my church, my first sermon to my church. Finally, we arrived. And when we arrived, 
We arrived at an onion field. I thought maybe, maybe I missed my calling and the Lord is actually calling me to this side, to, to a country of some sort. Maybe I'm a missionary. I said, that's all right. I'm, I'm, st- I'm going to be a church. I'm going to have a church. I'm going to be a pastor. So I said, fine. So I, I got out and I went into the onion field. The Lord pointed at the onion field. So I ran into the onion field. And I began to ran, run all throughout the onion field looking for my church. But I couldn't find anything. And I began to scream, hello, anybody out there? You're my church. You are my permanent assignment. Anybody out there? And no one was answering, but I kept running, looking for my church Bible in hand. And I'm sweating and I'm sprinting and I'm looking and I couldn't see a thing. And all the onions were everywhere. And I'm, and I'm crying out and, I, and I'm asking, anybody out there? And, and no one would respond. And then suddenly over it, out of the corner of my eye, I could see there was a huge white building uh, or like a white house and and right in front of that white house there were two men who were working the field and i thought to myself oh my goodness this is my church so i began to run towards those men and i began to run and i began to scream hello you're my church you're my church and and the more I ran, the, the the closer I got, and I was so excited. My heart was beating so fast, I couldn't wait to meet my church. And finally, I got to uh, where they could hear me, and so I screamed out, or I said, "Hey, I'm your new pastor. You're my church." God has brought me here to preach to you, and I'll finally get to preach to my church and. And and I spoke and they finally heard me and both of them looked back and they saw me. And when they turned around, I realized those weren't just two men. Those were my two boys. They looked over at me. And they said, yes, dad, you can preach to us. And I looked over. Jesus was standing on my side and he said, that is your church. Would you lift your hands all over this building right now? Father. We have such deep responsibility that you have placed on us. To bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Would you give us, oh Lord, a passion? Father, put a fire inside of every family in this room, even as I speak. That we would bring up our families. That generations upon generations of our family would serve you, would give to you pray oh God that you would you would save our children in spite of our shortcomings you would save our children in spite of all the times that we'd rather do other stuff you've called us to disciple them we uh we've spent so much time and so much money making sure they're good athletes good students and they're model citizens that they have a good home and a good house and that they live in a good neighborhood but oh God we have failed in the most important aspect of it all we have failed most of us have failed Forgive us. And now give us a new opportunity. Put a desire in us to disciple, to teach, to help them obey the Lord's commandments, to bring them up, O Lord, in a way that you would deserve. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Would you do me a favor? 
as you come to this altar, don't come by yourself. I want families to come together to this altar. Come together as a family. I know some of you, your children are on the other side. That's all right. Just just you come. Whoever's in your family at this moment, at this time, would you come? Bring your children with you if they're here. If, if they're not, it's okay. But just come. I want families to come together. I, I want to pray together as families here today at this house. God has a purpose for families. God has a purpose for your home. I, I know some of you may even be single, never had children of your own, but that's all right. You can come as well and you can pray because God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for you. If you're a father of a, of, of a family, would you come and intercede on behalf of your children and on behalf of your spouse and on behalf, if you're a single mom here and, and there's no father, that's all right. You can also, you're the matriarch. Why don't you pray over your, your family and your children? Let's intercede here on behalf. Let's ask God, God, give us, give us, help us to understand the importance Help us to understand the importance of bringing our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Lord, I want to be, for some of you, your first generation Christian, your first generation apostolic. I, 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 Lord, this, these are the patriarchs and matriarchs, oh Lord, who are raising not just this generation, but multiple generations of people in their lineage who are going to serve God. We're going to serve the Lord grandmothers and grandfathers here who who are the matriarchs and pay god give us give us oh lord a passion god give us a desire and the creativity and give us the understanding and help us oh lord put it inside of us but we want our children to be saved praying to mothers here who have backslidden children, fathers who have backslidden children, you, you, you've done your part, but they chose a different way. Oh, don't you ever stop interceding on behalf. Would you also lift your voice and begin to intercede on their behalf? Stand in the breach for them. Would you ask God that they would also come, that they would also be saved. Father, we're praying over them right now. Come on, come on, come on. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Give us people, oh God, that would help us, use us. This is what we want to do. This is how we want to live. Help us, help us, help us. Help us, help us. Help us. 